I was president of the speech and debate team, the class president, editor-in-chief of the online newspaper, um, the principal cellist of kind of like the local tri-county area orchestra. Zachariah Chow's high school resume is impressive. It had to be since he had his heart set on going to an Ivy League school. Thousand volunteer hours. And then, of course, just competing in a lot of other things, such as Model United Nations. And Quiz Bowl. He ranked nationally in debate and journalism. And he attended an elite private high school in South Florida on a full academic scholarship. They had excellent test prep there, which helped Chow get a perfect score in math on the SAT and a 34 on the ACT. So when it came time to apply to college... You know, I felt pretty confident in my application. I think Yale was kind of my number one. That's where I actually applied for early action. But of course, I ended up applying to around a dozen. So Harvard, Yale, um, American, Williams, UNC Chapel Hill. My only safety school is going to be the University of Florida. And how many did you get accepted to? One. That's impressive, right? Not in a good way, but it's impressive. Only the University of Florida said yes to Chow. It's a good school, selective too, but not what he was hoping for. I I just remember my guidance counselor kind of either verbally or physically having that raised eyebrow sort of feeling when I was, you know, discussing how things were going down. Be like, huh, all right, that's kind of weird. The elephant in the room was like, you know, if I wasn't Asian American, like, could this have turned out differently? Chow was born and raised in South Florida, but his parents are immigrants from Taiwan who came to the States to pursue further education. All we hear is kind of like the parents gossip and just talking about how harder, how much harder it is for Asian Americans. Did you feel at that point like you had been, you had been a victim of affirmative action? Yes. He was angry and intent on showing all those elite schools what a big mistake they'd made. So I printed out each of those rejection letters and I taped them to my wall. So, I mean, you know, if I looked up from my computer, ooh, bam, rejection letter on my face. Is it healthy? Maybe not. Is it toxic? Maybe yes. (laughs) Um, But is it motivating? Absolutely. (laughs) Imagine how surprised that angry college freshman would be to learn that several years later, he would publish an essay in USA Today titled, My Race May Have Played a Factor in My College Rejections, but I support affirmative action. I'm very comfortable with the fact that race should and can be a factor in admissions. You know, I didn't get into my dream school, but, you know, I'm doing just fine. Huh, I didn't realize that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, we're looking for some middle ground on affirmative action in college admissions. The U.S. Supreme Court is again considering whether universities can make an applicant's race part of the decision to admit or reject. The court has already said it is illegal to have quotas based on race. A school cannot, for example, say 100 out of 1,000 freshmen who get in this year must be black. But a school can look at an applicant's race as part of a whole picture and say, you know what, this student has lower test scores and grades, but they've also faced discrimination because of the color of their skin and shown real resilience in getting to where they are right now. Plus, we think having a diverse campus is really important, so we're going to let this student in. One reason why affirmative action sparks such intense emotion is because it inevitably leads to winners and losers. Zachariah Chow spent his whole childhood working hard to get into Yale, and someone else got his place instead. The idea that Yale might have rejected Chow because of his race, something he had no control over, felt awful and unfair. Universities may argue that they use racial preferences to create more diversity on campus, which in turn creates a more diverse and tolerant world. But being rejected for the greater good is no comfort to a high school graduate whose dreams have just gone up in smoke. And of course, you know, you could see all my peers also getting into those colleges. Which of the 13 schools you applied to 
had a policy in place that considered race in its admissions? I think almost all of them might have. The only the only school I know that definitely did not was the University of Florida because it is a Florida state school. Florida is one of a handful of states, including California, Michigan, and Washington, that ban affirmative action in college admissions. That made Chow even more certain that he had been the victim of affirmative action. No one can like look at my situation and be like, oh, well, that's not at least a little weird. So how did he come around to supporting affirmative action? Well, he started having a really great time at the one school that accepted him. I mean, it's Tom Notch at the University of Florida. You know, I I didn't feel like I stuck out because I came from a middle-class family, so that was kind of really nice. Um, And I met a lot of really good people. You know, having a very large student body population um, really does, you know, allow for an active student government, allow for an active newspaper, things that I just got so involved in. And then he volunteered to read essays written by students applying for the university's honors program. And that gave him a whole new perspective on the college admissions game. You know, I got to read hundreds and hundreds of essays every cycle. And you start to realize really the scale of how many top-notch people are applying. Chow started to see how it might have been possible that elite schools rejected him for reasons other than his race. Maybe his essay hadn't been the most stellar. He wasn't class valedictorian. Harvard's president once quipped that the school gets so many valedictorians applying, they could fill an entire class twice over. So the decisions about who to admit are always subjective on some level, based on the skills, experiences, and, yes, race or ethnicity of the applicant. Plus, elite schools routinely give preference to things other than grades and test scores. If you're an athlete, for example, or if your parent went to the school, that's called legacy admissions. Students with that kind of preferential treatment have made up nearly a third of Harvard's admissions in recent years, 12% at Yale, 14% at Princeton. To be fair, the college admissions process was always about how much money or resources you had. These are just parents looking out for their children, regardless of what's good for um, equity. Considering all of that, Zachariah Chow today sees affirmative action as a way to balance the scales a bit in favor of hardworking students with less money, resources, and connections. I think it simply just allows college admissions officers to look at people for the whole of themselves. An example of that, um, or parallel example of that perhaps, would be about, you know, considering socioeconomic status. It's understanding that oh, this student is from a low socioeconomic background or AKA they're just like not rich enough to afford test prep classes. So, oh, maybe I shouldn't, you know, look too down upon them when comparing them to another candidate who has a perfect SAT score. Um, And, you know, I, I do support colleges making sure that, you know, there is diversity within their classes. There's this wide misconceptions that Asian-Americans just don't support affirmative action. And, you know, that's the result of a lot of really powerful, loud, um, typically Chinese um, families, you know, flexing their wealth and privilege to try to get their kids into school. By and large, the majority of the Asian-American community supports affirmative action. They actually benefit from affirmative action themselves. Um, And understanding that really requires breaking down what you consider to be Asian-American, which is just a very wide term that represents, you know, dozens of different ethnicities, and some of which um, really do need a lot of um, grace and understanding for their backgrounds, you know, in them coming to America. So that would be people from Southeast Asia or... Pacific Islanders. And, you know, I'll just say it, like, I am Taiwanese... I'm part of the demographic that is, you know, number one or two in terms of being highly educated. My parents came to professional degrees. Like, you know, I I just don't have that same um, historical negative influence that someone who is a refugee coming over in the last generation has. You know, the, the amount of resources that, you know, my family had is certainly not like, you know, we were literally median income middle class. But 
that's just so much better than, you know, people who come here as refugees, for example. Zachariah Chow got a bachelor's degree from the University of Florida, and he's now an opinions editor for Gannett, which publishes USA Today. What is the point of affirmative action in college admissions? Is it mainly to give a boost to students from minority backgrounds who face disadvantages? Or is it primarily a tool to create more diverse campus communities? Americans first started talking in earnest about affirmative action in the 1960s with a series of presidential executive orders aimed at eliminating discrimination in federal agencies and programs. President Lyndon B. Johnson famously voiced the need for affirmative action during a commencement speech at Howard University in 1965. Here's a bit of the archival tape from CBS. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race and then say, you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. And this is the next and the more profound stage of the battle for civil rights. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 outlawed discrimination based on race. But taking affirmative action meant companies and colleges should be out there actively recruiting people of color and making sure their selection processes weren't putting up any barriers to those candidates. Over time, colleges began giving admissions preferences and even establishing quotas to speed up the pace of racial diversity. Affirmative action came to be seen as a kind of reparations, a way to level the playing field for African-American applicants in particular, who'd had fewer opportunities to succeed because of segregation and systemic discrimination. In the 1970s, a white man named Alan Bakke sued the University of California Davis Medical School for rejecting him because of a racial quota. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial quotas violate the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection under the law. But the court also said that some amount of discrimination based on race, say admitting a black student with lower test scores than a comparable white student, is okay if the purpose is to create a diverse campus. With that ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court, diversity, not reparations, became the main legal justification for affirmative action in college admissions. And schools across the country embraced the practice. But being rejected for the sake of diversity never got easier. I am deeply disillusioned that in the year 2003, it is necessary to go all the way to the Supreme Court for justice against a public institution that freely admits to discrimination. In the late 90s, Barbara Gruder was rejected from the University of Michigan Law School. The lawsuit she filed would reveal that she was not alone. Fewer than 20% of white and Asian students with similar marks got in, while 100% of the underrepresented minority applicants with scores like mine were admitted. Gruder's case made it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where she spoke at this press conference broadcast on C-SPAN a day before the oral arguments. As a woman, I have seen my generation make significant strides against sex discrimination. Now I find, 30 years into my professional life, I am being discriminated against on yet another basis, this time race, by people who not only admit it, but are also arrogant and elitist enough to tell me and others that it is somehow good for us. My answer to them is one word, no. Discrimination is wrong, it is personal, and it hurts everyone. In Gruder's case, the U.S. Supreme Court said, yes, racial discrimination is wrong. But Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in the majority opinion that universities have a special place in American society. They shape the nation's future. And it's in the nation's interest to have those paths to opportunity be as broad and diverse as possible so universities can consider race when deciding who to admit. 
A decade later, the court would affirm that position again, though adding that universities should do everything they can to get diversity on campus without giving preference to students of certain races. And now the issue is back before the court. The Supreme Court hopefully should once and for all rule that to racially balance a student body in college admissions is unconstitutional, is illegal. This is Win Yuan Wu. I am the executive director at Californians for Equal Rights Foundation. Californians for Equal Rights is a partner organization to the group that's suing Harvard and the University of North Carolina in cases now before the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2020, Wu's organization successfully convinced the majority of California voters to keep that state's ban on affirmative action in place. That gives me tremendous hope it showed us that even in a very progressive state that went overwhelmingly for Biden in that election year, voters still did not agree with race-based affirmative action. She points to a recent Pew Research survey that found nearly 75% of Americans think race should not be a factor in college admissions decisions, Most Americans say high school grades should be the main criteria, followed by standardized test scores. Fundamentally, uh, race-conscious admissions hurt the merit-based principle in, in our society, and that's a principle that has facilitated the, the success of the American experiment, that we can get ahead by working hard on the individual level. Anyone can get ahead, anyone can succeed in life, in schools, if they work hard. And if the system is such that um, an Asian American student and a black student will work just as hard, but the black student has less support, fewer resources, goes to a um, a less resourced school, and so ultimately they're both running just as hard, just as fast, but one of them had advantages that meant they could get across the finish line first. Who is to define the disadvantages versus advantages? I don't think that's any university's job. I think real-life disadvantages are very nuanced, are very complex issues that they cut across racial, ethnic, gender, um, all these lines. So um, just because a student is Asian or has an Asian surname, does it mean that he automatically has more institutional support or advantage than an underrepresented minority student? I don't think so. I think I think the reality is messier. So ideally, uh, uh, admission to elite universities would be based on test scores and GPA? Um, yes. The bottom line is I think we should evaluate students based upon merit and primarily focus on test scores and GPAs. And and if using only GPA and test scores meant that the student body at an elite university was disproportionately white and disproportionately Asian American, is that something that the university should try to fix in any way or just accept that that's the reality of a merit-based system in our current world? I think the real question we need to investigate is really Okay, so if we admit based primarily on test scores and objective academic standards and we don't get a racially diverse class, what to do about it? What kind of problems, deeper problems, does this expose? If the problems are at the K-12 level, if there are uh, learning disparities uh, as early as, say, elementary schools, then we need to tackle those problems, right? In K-12, in K-5 through even. And if the problems exposed by a not so racially diverse student body can be traced back to other factors uh, in the society at large, say um, community breakdown, family integrity, or lack thereof, um, and many more factors beyond the control of any university system, then we as a society need to work on fixing those problems instead of 
artificially engineering the finishing line. Winyuan Wu is executive director of Californians for Equal Rights Foundation. People who support affirmative action agree with her about the need to address root causes that lead so many poor and minority children in America to have fewer opportunities for success. But that's a big lift that could take another generation to solve. Meanwhile, engineering the finish line to give a few more of those kids a boost is something university officials feel they can do now. And for those students, it could be life-changing. My name is Dr. Monica O'Neill. I am a psychologist in Boston and faculty at Harvard Medical School. Dr. O'Neill has a strong suspicion that being African-American helped her get into the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is elite enough to be considered a public ivy. O'Neill graduated from a public high school in South Carolina in the mid-90s, a solid student with an undiagnosed learning disability who struggled on standardized tests but managed to stand out in every other way. She didn't have Ivy League aspirations, though, because she assumed she couldn't get in. She applied to UNC as an afterthought, a fluke, really. In hindsight, she thinks that's because she wasn't getting the same encouragement as white students at her school. You know, like my guidance counselor never told me that I should consider going, applying to Ivy schools or to UNC Chapel Hill, even though I was an AP student and did like had good solid grades, um, didn't suggest that I apply to UNC Chapel Hill. And they suggested that a bunch of other, I don't think they suggested any of the black students apply. They only suggested that to white students and white students who like had comparable, like, you know, scores to mine or like in or an application that collectively wasn't as strong as mine. And I'm fortunate to have family members that, you know, education was important and there was an encouragement because I certainly didn't get it anyplace else. The first time affirmative action was really actually brought up to me as like a reason as to why I might have gotten into UNC, to be honest with you, was from white students, classmates of mine who didn't get into UNC. That was the first time. We were all just collectively talking about we were going to school. And um, and I remember there being me and maybe, I want to say like maybe two more students who like had also gotten in. They were on track scholarships and I didn't play a sport. So, you know, um, so they were saying, well, I'm sure they got on because of track. And, and then, and then they were, and then they said with me, like, well, you know, I think somebody was like, well, I didn't think your SAT scores were strong enough. Like I thought mine were better than yours. And I was like, yeah. And they were like, well, you must've gotten in from affirmative action. And I was like, oh, well, maybe. And how do you, how do you feel about that? I feel great about it. I think that UNC accepted an exceptionally strong candidate based on like the completeness of my application and based on what I brought to the school. And now I'm faculty at Harvard. Like, I don't think that they, I feel great about it. They looked at me as like, what are you going to bring to this campus and what can we do to help boost you? And I think that it's like understanding that being black in the United States, there might've been limits or exposures or opportunities that you didn't have. And we want to give you an opportunity to have different types of opportunities. A handful of high-profile African-Americans, notably Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, have argued that affirmative action attaches a stigma to minority students at elite institutions and can even lead them to doubt their own abilities. But that was not Monica O'Neill's experience. How I felt showing up at Chapel Hill is that I felt excited. I never had insecurities. And I think the way that Chapel Hill thinks about it is like real equity in terms of we want our college to be representative of the United States population. So at Chapel Hill was the first time that I say, for instance, like met people who were Native American. And and at Chapel Hill, there were black students from all different backgrounds from different parts of the country. And in some ways it was the first time that I felt comfortable in my skin as a black person because, you know, of like the kind of music that I was interested in. Again, I was a musician, so I listened to a lot of classical music and opera and things like that. And I felt like there was a place for me as a Black student at Chapel Hill, you know, where I could be a person who listened to, like, Puccini and also listened to, like, Dr. Dre. O'Neill got a psychology degree from UNC Chapel Hill, a doctorate at George Washington University, and she's now on faculty at Harvard Medical School. Hers is the success story universities hope to see when considering race as a factor in admissions. 
But there is also evidence that if a minority applicant has much lower test scores and grades than other students admitted to an elite school, that minority student is a lot less likely to succeed. You can't throw a student who hasn't had AP chemistry into a first-year chemistry class where 90% of the other students have had AP chemistry. It's just a formula for disaster. In fact, that student with less experience may have been better off in the long run going to a less prestigious school. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Rick Sander arrived as a new professor in UCLA's law school just when the whole University of California system was about to experience a major shift. In 1996, California voters passed Proposition 209, which banned state universities from giving preference to applicants of certain races. You know, in many ways, I'm more of a social scientist than a lawyer. And most of my work is about trying to analyze the effects of social programs, especially those trying to address racial inequality. So here this amazing social experiment just fell into Sanders' lap, and it was right up his alley. What would happen when one of the largest public university systems in the country, with top-tier selective schools like UCLA and UC Berkeley, stopped giving any admissions preference to minority students? The immediate effect was a drop in Black and Hispanic enrollments at, at the university. But almost immediately, uh, the trend line turned back up. To me, what was striking is that the university changed from a system where it just kind of passively waited for applications to come in and then gave preferences to get the racial mix that it wanted. It changed from that to a system where it went out and tried to work on the pipeline. So it started spending a lot of money to try to educate students at um, low and moderate income schools of what the university expected for applicants. Uh, in California, we have something called the A to G requirements. Uh, what courses you need to take to get ready for college, how many years of math and how many years of science. And a lot of students weren't UC eligible because they didn't know about those requirements. So the university did a lot to make, make those better understood. It worked with schools to develop their curricula. Um, a number of UC campuses developed direct partnerships with schools in poor communities to try to increase um, the quality of the schools. Um, and those efforts seem to work. The high school graduation rate statewide for Hispanic students rose 20 points between 1996 and 2006. Um, and as you would expect, the number of applicants to the university uh, became much more diverse. So these efforts really did build up the pool and it led to, um, by the early 2000s, more Blacks and Hispanics uh, getting into the university. Then simultaneously, uh, because preferences had largely disappeared, the students who attended the university tended to be at campuses where they were better matched. Better matched. This would become the crux of Sanders' research over the coming decade. While a lot of the press coverage at the time was lamenting how fewer Black and Hispanic students were getting into the most elite schools, UCLA and UC Berkeley, Sander noticed that the Black and Hispanic students who were getting in seemed to be having much better success. If you look at UCLA and Berkeley, uh, before Pop 209, the four-year graduation rate for Black students was about 15%, so 1-5. Uh, so terrible. Ten years after Prop 209, UCLA and Berkeley were graduating almost half of the of the blacks and Hispanics who entered within four years. So a, a tripling of of on time graduation, and a quadrupling of rates at which students got STEM degrees. So much greater academic success, but on a smaller base. Right, Berkeley and UCLA had smaller numbers of blacks and Hispanics coming in. When you take the rest of the university into account, though, the number of Blacks and Hispanics um, at, at all levels was increasing. There were more coming in the door because um, the pipeline was stronger. They were more spread out across the entire system, and they tended to be at schools where their credentials and background were similar to those of the other students on campus. In other words, it put them in environments where they can compete more successfully. And that then produced much higher graduation rates for them and especially much higher 
rates of completion of, of STEM degrees in sciences and math. So the overall University of California story was, um, I think, brilliantly successful for minorities um, a decade after Prop 209. How can it be brilliantly successful, though, if you have far fewer Black and Hispanic students graduating with UCLA or Berkeley on their transcript? Uh, because a student is far better off graduating from UC San Diego on their transcript than not graduating from UCLA. Are you saying that um, most of the Black and Hispanic students who were being admitted to UCLA and Berkeley as a result of racial preference or with the help of racial preferences were not smart enough and capable enough to actually succeed at UCLA and Berkeley? I don't think smart enough is is relevant. It's how prepared they were. Mm. Um, as I say, improving the pipeline meant that, um, you know, Black and Hispanic students in California were coming into the university much better prepared. Um, someone's native talent, as it were, might not have changed, but their level of academic preparation was much greater. What Sander found is that the larger the preference a student is given in the admissions process, the higher the risk of academic mismatch. So a Black student whose SAT score and high school GPA are just a bit lower than the class average stands a good chance of thriving at that school because the preference given to that student was small. But a large gap in scores between the new student and the class average makes it likely that new student will struggle or even drop out. So to give you a concrete example is that nationally, whites pass bar exams at a rate of about 90 percent. Blacks pass bar exams at a rate of, you know, 60 to 65 percent. There has been speculation for decades about why that is. The mismatch research shows clearly that that entire gap is explained by preferences. So if um, if if a if a black student with a lower LSAT score and a lower GPA, if they go to a less elite law school, are they going to do better on the bar exam? Yeah, on average, they'll do much better. So so how how are we explaining that a student with the exact same test scores and capabilities, if they go to UCLA? they're going to have a harder time passing the bar exam than if they go to... Say Pepperdine. Okay. Yeah, so if they go to UCLA, they're going to be... um, Their classmates, on average, will have much higher LSAT scores and much higher college grades. Um, And so when the professor starts teaching, you know, I teach property law. And one of my first classes, I teach students about the difference between title and possession. Title has to do with ownership. Possession has to do with physical custody. Um, And that's a concept that, uh, you know, a typical student at UCLA will get in three or four minutes. Typical student at Pepperdine might not get it for 10 minutes. So the Pepperdine professor will spend more time explaining that concept and give more examples. Uh, UCLA will explain it briefly. And if we have a sense that the class gets it, we, we will move on to the next thing. So a student who has... Pepperdine level qualifications is going to get confused in the UCLA classroom and they're going to fall behind. And cumulatively, they'll fall further and further behind and just won't learn as much as they would in a class where the other typical student had credentials similar to theirs. And that's why they, they'll, they'll perform less well on the bar exam having gone to UCLA because they've learned less because they haven't really kept up with the class. They've learned dramatically less. Yeah. Does the same problem happen? Does mismatch also happen when, you know, somebody gets a boost on their application because their parents either went to the school or also and or have donated a lot of money to the school? Yeah. All the evidence that we have suggests that the same mismatch problems occur for legacies as occur for minorities. And I've done a lot of research looking at uh, students who receive preferences for non-racial reasons. And you see exact, the exact same effects. So, yes, it's very, very important for people to understand that when we talk about mismatch, we're not talking about um, something that's caused by someone's race. What the mismatch research shows is that performance differences are driven by preferences. They're not driven by racial differences. Is there something else besides 
racial preference that schools might want to consider that could help them get to the diversity that they're aiming for while also providing opportunity? You know, let's say you don't do the preference based on race, but you do it on something else. And as a result, you end up getting a more diverse campus. Yes, I I think and I have argued that socioeconomic preferences are a much better vehicle to use than racial preferences. And there are a couple reasons for that. One is that you are more genuinely targeting real disadvantage because, you know, there are, there are many advantaged blacks and many disadvantaged whites and Asians. And if you just focus on race, then you miss those folks and you're not necessarily really uh, creating pathways of opportunity. Um, schools currently focus so much on race and so little on socioeconomic status that the elite schools are overwhelmingly populated by students from the top 10% of American society. Uh, now, that's a racially diverse top 10%, but it's not socioeconomically diverse. Um, uh, so socioeconomic diversity, I think, better promotes the real ideals that are supposed to be behind preferences. If you were doing your preferences based on the, the family's income, would you end up with a racially diverse pool, as racially diverse as if you were doing your preferences based on race? No. I mean, by definition, if you use anything other than race, it'll be, you'll have a smaller racial impact. But collectively, you would be, you would have many more low and moderate income African-Americans and Hispanics who would benefit from the system. Uh, the current system overwhelmingly benefits upper middle, upper middle income and, and wealthy uh, blacks and Hispanics. So you would, you would reach much further into the populations. Sandra says there still might be the academic mismatch problem if you're admitting students from poorer backgrounds with less preparation than their wealthier peers. But he thinks the risk of that would likely be smaller. Because you greatly expand the pool when, when you're talking about socioeconomic preferences. The pool of students would be bigger because universities would be offering preference in admissions based on a family's income rather than specific racial groups. And that means admissions officers would have a better chance of finding diverse students with scores just a little lower than the class average rather than a lot. The smaller that gap, the less the risk of mismatch. And what's nice is that it's legal, right? I mean, the court, the, the Constitution doesn't say anything about discrimination based on socioeconomic status. So if a, a university wants to take into account socioeconomic status, it can engage in social engineering. It can say... We want to be a vehicle for opportunity. Um, we want to um, make sure that students across all schools in our state are getting access to our best education. And there's no legal problem with that. When the Supreme Court rules on the latest affirmative action cases on its docket, the new conservative majority on the court seems likely to further limit affirmative action in admissions, if not outright ban it. At the very least, Sander hopes the court will demand universities be transparent about how much preference they're giving students with certain backgrounds and the mismatch those students might suffer. Imagine if you had a transparency uh, that allowed students to say, okay, if I go to that school and I want to be, say, a chemistry major and I have these scores and these grades, what are my chances of graduating with a chemistry degree? There's a website right now where you, someone applying to law school can put in their LSAT score and undergraduate GPA and their race and pretty much see which schools they have a good shot at getting into. But they can't get any information about the outcomes. They can't get any information about what their likely GPA is or their chances of passing the bar exam. And that's information that students ought to have. If they're going to go to a stretch school, they really, really ought to have full transparency about the challenges they're going to face. It just seems you know, to me, completely irresponsible not to allow students that type of information. The upshot might actually be an end to racial preferences the way universities have been giving them, says Sander. Because students are rational, and, and if they have the information, they're probably going to pick a school where they have a pretty good chance of succeeding. Rick Sander is an economist and a law professor at UCLA. He's a leading researcher on academic mismatch and affirmative action in higher education. Couldn't a selective school do something to help a student overcome the mismatch problem? Students of color not completing college, dropping out, is not about the student. It is more often than not about the institution and its own failures. I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind.
education was a priority in Audrey Dow's home, growing up in East Los Angeles, attending a large public high school. I'm first-generation Latina. Um, my parents are, are both Mexican. My father is an immigrant to this country who came over at, at the age of 10. And for both of my parents who, who went to high school, um, they understood that it was going to be education that um, would mean that someone in our family could own a home, that someone could have a career and not just a job, that we would be able to live more than paycheck to paycheck. And it was because of, of affirmative action that I could be seen for the strengths and talents that I had, um, given my circumstances. Dow got accepted to USC, a number of University of California schools, and Brown University in Rhode Island. She chose Brown and enrolled as a freshman in the 1990s, but it did not go well. When I got to Brown, what I quickly came to realize with it was that the university was not set up to support students like me. So for example, I was in a philosophy class and the, and the professor was speaking so so quickly and I was trying to take copious notes because that's what we did in my high school while other students had very organized pages of notes that were, you know, um, that I later came to learn were Cornell-style notes that they had all been taught in their fancy prep high schools, right? That their parents had paid for. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know how to, I didn't have that skill, but there was nobody there to teach me that. There was nobody there um, to support me at the beginning of school on how, hey, here's some great tips for test taking. Here's some great tips for for taking notes. Um, here are some great tips for using office hours. When I saw office hours on the syllabus, I thought that was um, when you got called in because you were in trouble by the professor, not something you used in an affirmative way to really you know, understand a lesson or to get some support or guidance. I did not understand that. And there was nothing that the university offered or outreach that the university offered to first-generation students to help explain those norms. And so I did drop out and I dropped out because guess what? I got called into office hours by the philosophy professor who said to me, you know, and this was the only intervention I had at Brown, who said, how do you think you're doing in my class? And I said, I'm not doing well. I'm really struggling. And he's like, yeah, I would agree. So what are you going to do about it? And I'm like, well, how can I work with you? Um, what do you suggest I do? And he said, I suggest you drop this class. And I suggest you think about whether or not you really belong at Brown. That was devastating. You know, as an 18-year-old girl, Latina, who had left across the country to an unknown place, really struggling to make it, to have that be the one interaction with a, a professor who, who seemed to have zero interest in my learning and was quite quick to say, you don't belong here, that was devastating. And it reinforced some real imposter syndrome that I had about being there and and that for me was the moment that I decided I was going I was going to leave. Brown University's failure to help Audrey Dow overcome whatever preparation mismatch she had sent her back to California after just one year. She enrolled at USC instead and felt much more supported. The student body looked very different. There were a lot more students that looked like me. Um there were more somewhat more faculty and activities that that looked like me and that I could participate in. And there was just a more, again, welcoming culture um, there. There was a lot more student supports that really made a difference for me. USC worked out for Dow. She graduated on time and later got a master's at Princeton. Today, she is senior vice president at the Campaign for College Opportunity. That's committed to ensuring more students in California can go to college. And once they get there, that they graduate. And they're doing that work in a state that's banned affirmative action for the last 25 years. If the Supreme Court outlaws racial preferences nationwide, 
Dow says universities could learn a lot from the UC or University of California experience. You know, some of what we've we've learned, one, is that race-neutral policies are not as effective as race-specific. So the University of California in particular has tried a number of, of, of ways to uh, improve the racial and ethnic representation on campuses. And to be very direct, none have been as good as affirmative action. That said, there are things that, that, have, been, that have been helpful. So um, one of the things um, that the UC has done has done um, something called eligibility in the local context. And that is saying, you know, we're not just looking at you as a student as compared to everyone else in the state, but we're looking at you as a student um, based on your own high school. So you are eligible for a UC if you're in the top 9% of your high school. Any student who graduates top 9% of their public high school class in California is guaranteed a spot at the University of California. Students are rewarded for excelling in the local context of their lives and not compared to students who attended schools in different communities with different resources. While that gives a more diverse crop of students the chance at a University of California degree, it does not guarantee a spot at one of the prestigious campuses like UCLA or Berkeley. Dow says often the top performers from not-so-great high schools will get admitted to UC Merced, which is the least selective UC, and also a long way from the big urban centers where those students are often from. Most of those students, for financial reasons, need to stay close to home. Um, many of those students are need to continue working um, and providing for for their families, for their their parents or parent, for their for their siblings, and place becomes really important. And so, you know, I guess unfortunately, some of our most prestigious UCs are in the communities with large proportions of Black and Latinx students who need to be place-bound. And if the only UC campus they get into is in a different part of the state, Dow says those students are likely to end up just not going to college at all. So I think what would make eligibility in the local context stronger is if you were guaranteed a spot at, a, at you know, the two closest UC campuses or one of the two closest UC campuses to where you live. That would make it much more likely that a student actually takes up their, um, their admission seat. So that's that's one thing. I think that UC made tremendous headway on on racial equity when they got rid of the SAT and ACT. Those tests, the you know standardized tests, are are really being taken and scored high on by those students who have the means to be prepared for them, and that preparation includes tutoring and courses on how to game the test. Universities across the country were starting to make the SAT and ACT optional for applicants before the pandemic. But that trend has accelerated to now include all the Ivy League schools and more than 1,800 others. The Campaign for College Opportunity, where Audrey Dow works, has also called for California to fix the transfer system that's supposed to allow students who either can't afford or can't get into a four-year college to start at a community college and finish up at a university. Dow says what too often happens is students languish in community college trying to cobble together the right mix of credits their preferred university requires. And then once they've got those credits set, they're competing with the latest crop of high school graduates for the same admissions slots. That has been a, a system that has just been broken for too long. And it means that not, you know, a lot of talented and eager students have spent their time, have spent their money um, trying to get to the point of a baccalaureate degree and haven't. And I think what's more tragic is, is the equity imperative that's there. You know, when Latinx students go to college, 70% of them started a community college. 90% of Black men in the state who go to college started a community college. So when community colleges and the transfer function don't work, we're really shutting out millions of 
students of color to the potential and promise that a bachelor's degree holds. In a society where so much rides on a college degree, Dow says it's incumbent on public universities to make those degrees as accessible as possible. California's higher education structure is based on a 1960s plan that was based on a 1960s economy that said we only need about 33% of our population to get a college degree. Well, you and I know that today, the entry-level credential for work is a bachelor's degree. So we need a lot more spots than we currently have. And I think that's why it was so such an important and huge step for Governor Newsom in January to announce that he wants to set a college attainment goal for the state of California, such that by 2030, 70% of adults in the state will have a college degree. Well, that doesn't happen unless we significantly expand access. We significantly expand seats. The scarcer a thing is, the higher the emotions riding on whether you win or lose. And above all, it's scarcity that fuels the debate over affirmative action in America. The country's most elite universities thrive on the prestige of being able to say they admit a minuscule 5 or 6% of all the people who apply each year. That makes for a lot of rejection. But here's what people who support affirmative action and those who oppose it can agree on. Nobody wants to work hard for something only to be rejected because of factors beyond their control. Whether it's the color of their skin, their parents' income, or the neighborhood they came from. Focusing on affirmative action as the friend or enemy of fairness in American society may in fact be a distraction from the need to create a system where there are more winners overall, where there are more seats at the table, more ways to get those seats, and more focus on making sure every child is prepared to take one if they choose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me and Cole Cummings with help from Cleon Wall and Ciara Hewlett. We had music and sound design by Jacob Molaski, Christian Mocatel, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you're enjoying Top of Mind, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That'll help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon.